This is Space Time Series 23, episode 127, for broadcast on the 27th of November 2020. Coming up on Space Time, the new mission to study the rock comet Phaeton, a new study claims Europa's water plumes could be originating not in its oceans, but in its crust. And some sad news today, with the announcement that the Arecibo radio telescope will be demolished. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Germany and Japan have announced plans to develop a new mission to study the asteroid 3200 Phaeton. The mission, known as Destiny Plus, will launch in 2024 on a Japanese Epsilon S rocket from the Yichinura Space Center in Japan on a four-year mission to the mysterious asteroid. Once it arrives at Phaeton, the probe will study the debris trails being generated by the asteroid, which is often referred to as a rock comet because of its cometry-like behavior. It is a highly elliptical and eccentric orbit, much more closely resembling that of a comet than an asteroid. In fact, there's a lot of speculation that it may in fact be an ancient comet that simply run out of the volatile gases which characterize comets, producing their iconic coma and tails. Phaeton's comet-like orbit crosses all the inner terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars, and is classified as being potentially hazardous to the Earth. The 5-kilometre-wide asteroid's orbit takes it closer to the Sun than the planet Mercury, with a perihelion of less than 21 million kilometres. That's less than half Mercury's perihelion distance. Now, coming so close to the Sun causes Phaeton's surface temperature to soar to over 750 degrees Celsius. That sort of constant soaking heat causes surface rocks on the asteroid to fracture and split open, often flinging dust and small particles into space. Observations by NASA's stereo spacecraft have shown dust trails radiating off the surface, and in 2010, Phaeton was detected ejecting dust. Phaeton's composition also fits the notion of a cometary origin. It's officially classified as a B-type asteroid because it's composed mostly of dark material. B-type asteroids are thought to be very primitive, containing lots of volatile-rich remnants from the early solar system. Now, all this debris being ejected by Phaeton produces the annual Geminids meteor shower every December. The Geminids have an unusual yellowish hue, and they tend to be a bit larger and more solid than typical meteors from comets. They also move more slowly, travelling at around 35 kilometres per second, compared to some cometary meteor showers, which travel at speeds of up to 72 kilometres per second, more than twice as fast. The Geminids, together with the Quadrantids, are the only major meteor showers known to originate from something that's not a comet. Now, interestingly, the Geminids are thought to be intensifying every year, with recent showers seeing up to 160 meteors per hour. Destiny Plus will study these debris particles in order to determine whether the arrival of extraterrestrial dust particles on Earth may have played a role in the creation of life. During Destiny Plus's flyby, the spacecraft will approach to within 500 kilometres of the asteroid's surface. Its primary science instrument will be the German DDA Dust Analyzer, a high-resolution mass spectrometer designed to collect and study cosmic dust particles. The instrument will look for organic compounds and associated elements, things like carbon, which is one of the basic building blocks for life on Earth, 
and which may have been delivered to Earth in these dust particles. Both a telescopic and a multiband camera will also be fitted to the spacecraft to study the asteroid surface. While DLR build the primary science instrument, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency JAXA will build and launch the actual spacecraft, and they'll be in charge of mission management. This new mission follows in the footsteps of JAXA's recent Hayabusa 2 mission to the asteroid Ryugu. It included the German-built mascot Lander, which touched down on the asteroid's surface. Hayabusa 2 also collected asteroid samples, which will parachute down into the Woomera rocket range in outback South Australia on December the 6th. DLR and JAXA are also working together on the MMX mission. That'll study the Martian moons Phobos and Deimos. Phaeton is named after the son of the Greek sun god Helios. The legend has it that Phaeton almost destroyed the Earth after stealing Helios's chariot and scorching Earth with the sun, almost causing the apocalypse. Maybe that's something we shouldn't be talking about in the year 2020. This is Space Time. Still to come... A new study suggests water plumes erupting from Jupiter's ice moon Europa might actually be originating in the crust itself rather than being forced up from the underlying subsurface ocean. And sad news in the scientific community with the announcement that the Arecibo radio telescope will be demolished. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A new study suggests that water plumes erupting from Jupiter's ice moon Europa might be originating inside the frozen crust itself rather than being forced up from the underlying subsurface ocean. Scientists have long looked at these geysers as a way of sampling the moon's global subsurface ocean without the need to drill tens of kilometres through the icy crust in order to reach it. Researchers want to know if this subsurface ocean, which contains more water than all the Earth's oceans combined, is habitable and whether it could contain the ingredients of life. But a new study, reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, suggests a process for brine or salt-enriched water moving around within the moon's crust and eventually forming little pockets of water, even more concentrated with salt, that could ultimately erupt onto the surface. So it's important to know exactly which plumes you study. That's because water originating from the icy crust is considered to be less hospitable for life compared to water from a global interior ocean. That's because it likely lacks the energy that's a necessary ingredient for life. In Europa's oceans, the energy is thought to come from hydrothermal vents on the seafloor. And similar vents in Earth's mid-ocean ridges are teeming with life. And many scientists believe it may even be where life on Earth began. The new study's lead author, Gregor Steinbrugger from Stanford University, says understanding where these water plumes originate is important for knowing whether future Europa explorers could have a chance to actually detect life from space without directly probing Europa's ocean. Using images collected by NASA's Galileo spacecraft, Steinbrugger and colleagues developed a model to show how a combination of freezing and pressurization could lead to a cryovolcanic eruption, a geyser of frigid water. The results could also provide a window on eruptions and other icy bodies in the solar system. The authors focused their analysis on Mananen, a 29-kilometre-wide crater on Europa that resulted from an impact with another celestial object tens of millions of years ago. 
Reasoning that such a collision would have generated tremendous heat, Steinbrugger and colleagues modelled how the melted ice and subsequent freezing of the water pocket within the ice shell could have pressurised it, causing the water to erupt. Their model indicates that as Europa's water partially froze into the ice following the impact, leftover pockets of water could have been created in the moon's surface crust. And these salty water pockets could have moved sideways through Europa's ice shell by melting adjacent regions of the ice and consequently becoming even saltier in the process. The model proposes that when a migrating brine pocket reached the centre of Manannan Crater, it became stuck and began freezing, generating pressure that eventually resulted in a plume estimated to have been well over one and a half kilometres high. The eruption of this plume left a distinguishing mark, a spider-shaped feature on Europa's surface that was observed by Galileo's imaging and incorporated into the model. The authors say that the findings suggest that Europa's ice shell could be very dynamic, and it will be important to differentiate which plumes are coming from these ice shell features and which could be coming from the ocean beneath. This is Space Time. Still to come, one of the world's great astronomical instruments, the giant Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico, is to be demolished. And a new era begins with the first Dragon commercial crew mission to the International Space Station. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. One of the world's greatest astronomical instruments, the giant Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico, is to be demolished. The move by the National Science Foundation follows extensive damage to the parabolic reflector dish after two major support cables suddenly snapped. The iconic radio telescope comprises a giant 305-metre diameter parabolic dish which is nestled into the surrounding tropical landscape. A 900-ton instrument platform is suspended by cables 140 metres above the centre of the dish. The cables supporting this instrument platform are connected to three towers equally spaced around the dish. On August the 10th, an auxiliary cable suddenly broke from its tower socket, smashing down onto the reflector dish, causing significant structural damage and leaving a 30-metre-wide gash in the dish's surface. Engineering teams were about to implement emergency structural stabilisation of the auxiliary cable system. They were waiting for the arrival of two replacement auxiliary cables and two temporary cables when on November the 6th, a second cable suddenly failed on the same tower. This one was one of the main support cables and it crashed down on the dish causing even more damage. Engineers haven't determined why the main support cable broke but they suspect it's related to the extra load the remaining cables have been carrying since the August failure. Engineers subsequently found that this 10-centimetre-thick main cable snapped at just 60% of what should have been its minimal braking strength, and it happened during calm weather, so they couldn't blame the wind load. It's raised concerns that some or all of the remaining cables may also be far weaker than expected. And inspections of the other cables have revealed new wire breaks on some of the main cables, which were original to the structure, and evidence of significant slippage in several sockets holding the remaining auxiliary cables, which were added during a refit in the 1990s that added weight to the instrumentation platform. Following the inspection, engineers concluded that the telescope structure itself is in danger of a catastrophic failure, and its cables may simply no longer be capable of carrying the sorts of loads they were designed to support. 
Worse still, they determined that the damage simply couldn't be stabilised without risk to construction workers and staff at the facility. Any attempts at repairs could put workers potentially in life-threatening danger. And even if repairs were carried out, the engineers found that the structure itself would likely present long-term stability issues. All this has left the National Science Foundation with little option but to approve a full controlled demolition. The decommissioning will be limited to the 305-metre parabolic dish and supporting towers, with other parts of the observatory preserved for future research and educational missions. Arecibo has served as a beacon for scientific research for 57 years, providing a world-class resource for radio astronomy, planetary science, studying the solar system and geospace research. It's also appeared in numerous feature films and movies, including James Bond Eagle Eye and Contact. Its demise will undoubtedly be a severe blow to astronomy. This is Space Time. Still to come, a new era begins with the first Dragon commercial crew mission to the International Space Station, and later in the Science Report, a new study finds that you can't really tell the difference between people who take multivitamins and those who don't. All that and more still to come on Space Time. NASA's Crew-1 mission has successfully docked to the International Space Station, ushering in a new era of spaceflight with commercial companies now undertaking the job of transporting crew to the orbiting outpost. The SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule named Resilience docked with the orbiting outpost 27 hours after launching aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from Space Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. Okay, Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. And resilience rises. Not even gravity contains humanity when we explore as one for all. Stage one propulsion is nominal. Dragon and Falcon 9. Stage 1 is preparing to throttle down in preparation for max Q, which is maximum aerodynamic pressure. Stage 1, That call out for throttle down. Power and telemetry continue to be nominal for the vehicle, now traveling at 262 meters per second. Falcon 9 is supersonic. Uh, the Falcon 9 is supersonic, and we will be passing through Max Q here shortly, the largest structural load during ascent. Max Q. And there's that call out. That Falcon has passed through stage Max one, Q. One Bravo. And we've just entered stage one Bravo aboard mode. That's going to take them through the end of the first stage burning just before second stage activates off the coast of North Carolina. T plus one minute and 40 seconds into flight. Dragon and Falcon 9 traveling 709 meters per second. That call that MVAC chill is underway. The Merlin vacuum engine. Now with the call out of MVAC D chilling, 
similar to what we saw in the first stage Merlin engines, the second stage engine being prepared for its ignition coming up in just over 30 seconds from now. We're a half a minute away from three quick events in rapid succession. We're going to get main engine cutoff. The nine Merlin engines will throttle down and then shut down. We're going to get stage separation. Stage one throttle down. And then ignition of the second stage engine. We've begun the throttle down in preparation for stage separation. Stage separation confirmed. Stage separation has confirmed. There goes that MVAC engine. Stage two, crew one is now on their way to the International Space Station. Stage two continuing to burn. Is stage one preparing for its return to Earth? Grid fins have deployed on the first stage. The first stage is now unpowered, but with the velocity it had, it continues to coast up to an apogee before it begins to descend back into Earth's atmosphere. Dragon, SpaceX, trajectory nominal. You can hear the call out. Trajectory is nominal. Nominal trajectory. And we've heard call out Bermuda. That means Bermuda ground station has the signals from the second stage of the Dragon and Falcon 9. We're still continuing as stage two burns to listen for those abort zones. We are now in 2A through 2E to Echo, taking us up over the northern Atlantic. The second stage engine. Power on the MVAC-D engine continues to run at 220,000 pounds of thrust in the vacuum of outer space. Dragon SpaceX trajectory nominal. And trajectory nominal. Copy, nominal trajectory. And we hear that there's a reply from the crew acknowledging we have a nominal trajectory. Dragon made it to the Falcon 9 second stage, heading into the low Earth orbit, where Dragon will then separate and begin its trip the rest of the way to the space station. We'll be looking for SECO, second stage engine cutoff, coming up at 8 minutes and 48 seconds after launch today. Dragon and Falcon 9, second stage, currently flying 2,979 meters per second. Now, currently, the first stage has begun its descent. It is through Apogee. It's beginning to come back down. Where it coming up in another couple of minutes, we will have the entry burn where we begin to slow down the Dragon first stage. SpaceX, trajectory nominal. Copy, nominal trajectory. Another call out, another nominal trajectory, just what we love to hear. That voice you're hearing on board Dragon, that's Commander Mike Hopkins speaking for our four-person crew as they continue their journey. Now six minutes and 12 seconds after liftoff. Altitude, 201 kilometers. Uh, we're now beginning to essentially level out and pick up velocity to get us into low Earth orbit. We're a little under one minute from the ignition for the entry burn on first stage. And we're about two minutes Dragon away. SpaceX, trajectory nominal. Copy, nominal trajectory. Great news, now seven minutes after launch. Second stage engine continues to burn, everything looking good. Right now on stage two, crew's getting about uh, a little more than two and a half Gs of acceleration. First stage preparing to ignite for the stage entry two burn. And we've got ignition of the entry burn, center engine, followed by the other two restart engines. First stage now getting ready to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. This is about a 29-second burn, and it's designed to slow the vehicle way down. We're going to shed about 70% of the velocity of that dropping first stage by the time the entry burn completes. First stage on target for the drone ship 
in the Atlantic Ocean. Now just about 20 seconds more of stage two continuing to burn until we see second stage engine cutoff or SECO. We'll coast for a few minutes afterward to allow the rates in motion. Shannon. To... And there, Shannon. There's that call for Shannon. That's Shannon, Ireland, an abort zone, but it looks like we continue smoothly to orbit today. Impact shutdown. And we've got shutdown of the second stage engine on time. Dragon SpaceX, nominal orbit insertion. Launch escape system is disarmed. And SpaceX copies. And Leah, the words we like to hear, a nominal orbit insertion. That's right, John. Nominal orbit insertion, as we mentioned, stage two. Oh, looks like some action on stage one. And I believe we've had a touchdown on the drone ship. We've got stage one has touched down on the drone ship in the Atlantic Ocean. But now the more important news, second stage is in orbit right where we want, right on time. And we're getting ready for our next major activity, which will be Dragon spacecraft separation. Now, currently on the second stage, we are essentially venting pressure, purging the engine out, making sure everything is quiet in preparation. Now our Crew-1 crew now coasting in low Earth orbit, still attached to that second stage. In just a couple of minutes, we should see that second stage separate, and Crew Dragon will be flying free. Malia, the mission timer shows 90 seconds to Dragon separation. Currently, Dragon is flying at 27,000 kilometers an hour. Our astronauts, Shannon Walker, Victor Glover, Mike Hopkins, and Suichi Noguchi, now on their way to the International Space Station. First trip to space for Victor Glover. Signal Newfoundland. And that call out, acquisition of signal in Newfoundland. That means the Newfoundland ground station is now receiving telemetry from Dragon. And separation confirmed. That's second stage departing. Crew Dragon leaving it behind. Resilience docked autonomously onto the forward docking port of the space station's Harmony module, with the four Crew-1 astronauts formally joining the Expedition 64 mission. In the process, bringing the standard space station complement up from six to seven. We are currently go on the ground for docking. Dragon on the big loop. Uh, looks to us like uh, we've gone through sunset, and we have we'll get the lights strobing. We can see the target, and so we are go to proceed. Visors are down. Copy. You are go to proceed, and visors are down. That's great to hear. We will be commanding the resume shortly. And as a reminder, once Dragon is inside, the crew hands off point. Retreat and breakout are not permitted. Copies all. Copies all. I'm ready. We've got confirmation that we have go from the crew. So they will be starting this procedure shortly. We'll start approaching that docking adapter. Once we get close enough, we will do a soft capture, followed by the insertion of the pins for the hard capture. We also heard the core mention uh, once that we reach the crew hands-off point, that's the chop call we'll hear. Retreat and breakout are not permitted. That would be from the crew. The vehicle can still abort if necessary, but as we said, everything continuing to look good for Crew Dragon, ready to depart Waypoint 2. Final approach has begun. Crew Dragon moving in toward the International Docking Adapter on Node 2. Kate Rubin standing by on the International Space Station, monitoring their approach. Their arrival at the International Space Station today will be coming about 27 and a half hours since their liftoff last night at 7.27 p.m. Eastern Time from Kennedy Space Center in Florida aboard a Falcon 9 rocket. We are now about 15 meters away. 
Very slow, deliberate, steady movements for Crew Dragon making its way to the International Space Station. We'll be looking for soft capture first with the soft capture ring already extended. Once we have soft capture, the ring will retract and bring us into a hard capture that should take about 13 minutes for that entire process, firmly securing us to the International Space Station, and then we'll move into leak checks. And SpaceX from Dragon on the big loop, we show 10 meters, we've got good lighting, good visuals. Great to hear, we see 10 meters as well. Both Dragon and the International Space Station are traveling about 17,500 miles an hour over Earth right now, both about 262 statute miles over the planet. The crew watching as they approach that node port two. Her at the very bottom, there was CHOP, crew hands-off point, standing by for contact. Dragon SpaceX, soft capture confirmed. Dragon copies, and we see the same. As you heard that call out, soft capture is now complete. Next will be hard capture. This is where the pins will insert themselves into that docking adapter and create a hard lock. And we had that soft capture at 8.01 p.m. Pacific Time, 11.01 p.m. Eastern Time. Crew Dragon and the International Space Station flying 262 statute miles over Idaho. Although Dragon cargo ships are regular visitors to the space station, shuttling supplies and equipment to and from the orbiting outpost, this is only the third docking of a Crew Dragon capsule. The first was the automated Demo-1 validation mission that was back in March 2019 and it carried additional supplies, but no people. That was followed by the Demo-2 validation mission in May this year, which was the first Dragon flight to carry a crew. It remained docked for 62 days with its two-man crew working with members of the Expedition 63 mission. The Crew-1 mission is the first operational flight. They'll remain on station for six months and they'll ultimately be replaced by the Crew-2 mission, which is slated for launch at the end of March. Meanwhile, the other commercial crew transport contractor, Boeing, are still working to try and achieve a successful first unmanned test flight for its CST-100 Starliner capsule, which has been plagued with setbacks. These included a mission clock failure during the first test flight back in December 2019. That resulted in a premature orbital insertion burn too low to reach the International Space Station. The mission was therefore cut short and the unmanned capsule successfully returned to Earth, landing in the White Sands missile range. But it could have been a lot worse. Boeing were lucky to detect two crucial software errors affecting both in-orbit and deorbit operations of the spacecraft. Each of these would have led to the destruction of the capsule had they not been caught and corrected in time. Boeing are now hoping to attempt another unmanned test flight to the space station sometime in the new year. And if that goes well, they'll then attempt a crewed mission, hopefully before the end of next year. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study claims it's difficult to find any real differences in the health of people taking multivitamins compared to those who don't. A report in the British Medical Journal found that the health benefits of taking multivitamins and mineral supplements may in fact be all in your mind. Researchers found that people who take multivitamins and minerals say they feel healthier than those who don't, despite there not being any real differences in terms of measurable health outcomes. 
Multivitamins and supplements are widely used and the industry is worth billions of dollars every year. But multiple clinical trials have failed to identify any real tangible health differences in people without pre-existing vitamin deficiencies. It's been revealed that China have been using a secret microwave weapon to quite literally cook Indian soldiers alive on the Himalayan border. University of China international studies expert Professor Jin Kenrong has told his students in Beijing the electromagnetic weapon is designed to cook human tissue, turning the mountaintops into microwave ovens. It seems the People's Liberation Army deployed its poly-WB-1 weapon in August, making it the first known use of any microwave weapon on the battlefield. The communist government's microwave weapon sends out millimetre-wavelength electromagnetic radiation, causing water molecules in the human body to heat up, resulting in intense pain. The weapon, which is mounted on a specially modified truck, is effective out to a range of at least a kilometre. Beijing's border dispute with India is one of many squabbles the increasingly aggressive country is now having with other nations. Scientists are developing a new laser tractor beam designed to control where lightning strikes hit the ground. The project, by scientists with the Australian National University and the University of New South Wales, could produce technology that reduces the risk of catastrophic bushfires by creating a path that directs electrical discharges to specific targets. Many of Australia's devastating 2019-2020 bushfires were caused by dry lightning strikes. In their latest research, scientists used a laser intensity a thousand times less than that in any previous attempts, meaning any potential technology to control lightning could be much cheaper, safer and more precise. The beams work by trapping and heating graphene microparticles in the air. The discovery, reported in the journal Nature Communications, also has potential for microscale control of electrical discharge in medicine and manufacturing applications. Scientists have created some buzz, putting together the most complete map of bee species ever made. There are over 20,000 known species of bee. That's more than birds and mammals combined. But until now, information about how these species are spread has been sparse. By combining data from the most complete global checklist of known bee species, with almost 6 million additional public records of where individual species have appeared in the world, the researchers have been able to create a map that, dare I say, is really the bee's knees. A report in the journal Current Biology found that there seem to be more bee species in the northern hemisphere than the southern hemisphere, and more in arid and temperate environments than the tropics. The authors hope the data will help them figure out what drives diversity in these buzzy buddies and how to conserve and protect them in the future. The COVID-19 pandemic has led state governments across Australia to impose various often contradictory regulations to try and stop the spread of the disease. These have included increasing police powers to enforce emergency regulations about the wearing of protective face masks, the number of people that can be gathered at any one location, or the imposition of lockdowns to restrict the movement of people. There are legitimate concerns that these so-called temporary powers have resulted in police, especially in the state of Victoria, carrying out human rights abuses, arresting pregnant mothers in their homes for what they say on Facebook, or threatening to arrest senior citizens taking a quick break by sitting on a park bench during a walk and then stealing their cell phones so they couldn't record the police's actions. And these measures have led to some rebuff from other members of the community like refusing to wear a protective face mask when entering a store. But if you do refuse to wear a protective face mask, does the store owner have the right to refuse your entry? 
And if they do refuse entry, is that an abuse of your human rights? Tim Mendham says, Australian sceptics have been looking at your rights to disregard inconvenient COVID-19 restrictions. This is a, I think we covered quite a lot of the most recent issue of our magazine, The Skeptic, which we looked at the sovereign citizen movement and the way that people see their rights and the way they approach governments and regulations and the need for them to comply or not comply with those regulations. The sovereign risk of the... These are the Karens and the Kevins at Bunnings refusing to put their mask on when they go inside. That's right, yeah. And initially it was Karen, then we added Kevin to sort of spread the gender role a bit. And then we started spelling it Karen with a Q and Kevin with a Q. So that because all the Karens and Kevins were getting upset, they were being pilloried. Um, So anyway, so yeah, the Karens and the Kevins are people who are sovereign citizens who have done their intensive and extensive research on Google and are now regard themselves as having their own particular individual civil rights to disobey or not to abide by regulations which they see in positions on them and which they also see if you could use the term illegal, but that sort of don't apply to them and that those laws and things are part of a, a conspiracy. So yes, the, the, the Karens and the Kevins who go along to Bunnings and say, I don't need to wear a mask. I'm a free person. Uh, that, that's one of the terms that are used and that your rules don't apply to me. And the answer is they do very much so. And the Bunnings are, very, are just entitled as anyone to say, you can't enter our premises unless you abide by these rules. You can't enter our store wearing nothing but a pair of thongs or well, you can't come in here. Like, <laughs> Generally speaking, you can't enter the store without wearing any clothes. And if they ask you to wear a mask, they are perfectly entitled to do so and within their legal rights. Despite the views of some lawyers, or there's one particular lawyer I can think of who was suggesting to Victorians they should disobey the rules and therefore end up taking it to court or being taken to court and, and clogging up the court processes. That was advice of a lawyer. What's the Australian Constitution say about it all? The Australian Constitution says you have no rights in this matter or that the, the, the um, you have no specific special rights in this matter. There is no Bill of Rights in Australia. Yeah, but we have common okay. law instead. So everything, common law everything instead. is legal yeah. unless it's specifically deemed illegal. Yes, and, and those things which are deemed illegal are binding and those things which are regulations put upon either by governments or by certain private institutions are also binding on you. So they, the people refer to, oh, the Declaration of Human Rights and the Magna Carta and this, that and the other is wrong. It does not entitle you to do whatever you like. In fact, there's a principle which underlies most of these things, and it's called the harm principle. And the suggestion there, as espoused by John Stuart Mill, the philosopher in his book on liberty, is that you can do what you like with the caveat that you cannot harm someone else in doing it. And that's the harm principle. And that is stated in the declarations of human rights and in sort of a whole range of different areas where this is sort of seen as the caveat upon your right to do anything you like. You can't, right? You have certain rights within reason. And if you start harming other people, and that could be not wearing a mask and spreading coronavirus. But what if you're not infectious? If Where does that fit in then? It still causes panic to other people, I guess. The, the, the crazy thing, you can see a whole lot of different arguments along various different aspects, but the one about wearing a mask, it's a first world problem. It's not exactly the, the most important imposition on you to wear a mask, unless you're wearing two masks at the one time. That was me, and we won't talk about that on air, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm a self-confessed germaphobe. I admit this. The wearing a mask is not a major imposition. Being locked down is a more of an imposition, and that might have, as some people are suggesting, mental health issues. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. 
that's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group, and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 